Hi, Julie. Hey, Lisa. Welcome back. You were in Philly this weekend. How was the Broad Street Run? It was. Um, it was really good. It was a bucket list item that I really wanted to check off. And um, I had actually signed up for Broad Street in 2020. Uh, that was actually the first season we weren't planning on doing our spring speed and strength program. And um, because the timing worked out, I thought, well, what a great opportunity to do Broad Street. It was just, it, Broad Street is the largest, the country's largest 10 miler race. It is actually 40,000 runners, which is larger than Boston, larger than most large marathons. Really, I think maybe New York and Chicago are the only two that are larger. So it is the uh, country's largest uh, 10 miler. And it was always sort of on my bucket list. And in 2020, I thought I would add it to my calendar. And then we, we know what happened in 2020. And I actually did it virtually that year. They let us do it virtually. So I got a shirt and everything. And I kind of then put it out of my mind until several months ago when I got an email that said, you have a deferred entry because you didn't run in 2020. And I thought, you know what? Let's do it. So Paul entered the lottery and luckily got into the lottery. And it happened to be my birthday weekend. So we said, let's make it a birthday trip to Philadelphia. I knew it would be pretty quickly after Boston. So I didn't know exactly how I would feel, but I figured it would be a fun weekend anyway. And it actually happened to coincide with the Penn Relays, which are held at Penn, um, Franklin Field at Penn. And so we actually went to go watch the Penn Relays on Saturday and then did Broad Street 10 miler today. And I will say um, it was a really uh, fun race, a really great course. It is uh, net downhill and feels pretty much flat or downhill the whole course. It's a straight point to point, which is always nice. You don't have a lot of a couple turns that when you go through um, Center City of Philadelphia and a couple turns at the very end. But for the most part, it's a straight down, straight shot um, down Broad Street. And so that makes it really easy. No turns. Um, uh, but I will say it is a very large race. It comes with very large race logistics. Uh, you have to take the the subway to get to the start. Um, lots of really, really big corrals. It's very crowded. It feels very similar to Boston when you get started of like having the first mile really being crowded. Um, the, the bag check system did not work well for us today. I don't know if it was for all of the buses, but our particular bus had just a really um, tough time with the bags. So it actually took us almost longer to get our bags back than it did to run the race. Um, but, uh, and then there's, you know, the whole crush to get back onto the subway. You have to take the subway um, unless you have your car parked at the finish, which is south of the city, you have to get on the subway to take it back up into the city. Uh, so we had to do that after. And that was, you know, kind of crowded. So it, it comes with all the kind of big race logistics and crowding uh, and, and big crowds. So if you're not somebody who loves those big crowds, I think it's probably uh, not not the one for you. I think I really like uh, the Philadelphia distance run, which uh, had had taken place for many, many years and got taken over by rock and roll. Uh, uh, Rock and Roll of Philadelphia uh, for many years, and now it's back in the hands of, of, of um, a local Philly race director. And um, I really, really love that race. Um, and I like that course a little bit better. It's a little bit more scenic, uh, but I'm glad I checked it off my bucket list. So we had a really nice time, great time in Philly. It was really fun to watch the Penn Relays the day before. Um, we just had like an all running, an all running weekend. So that was a very appropriate way to, to celebrate my birthday. So it was a good race. Again, happy to check it off my bucket list. Well, first of all, happy, happy birthday, Lisa. I'm so glad you got to celebrate in one of your favorite ways, which is doing a race and, and just having a fun weekend away. And you forgot to mention, who did you see at the finish line, which is so oh, This crazy. was funny. I crossed the finish line and 
One of the first people I see is Brenda Hodge, who's been a guest on our podcast and standing with Brenda was Karen Dunn, who has also been a guest on our podcast. So two of our podcast guests right at the finish line, both had really great races. Um, and it was really nice to see them in person and get to say hi to them. So congratulations to Brenda and Karen. And um, yeah, it was just funny that, you know, just as I crossed the finish line, the first, first few people I recognized, at least, you know, it was of all the 40,000 people. Yes. I saw two of our podcast guests, which was very fun. It is. And all three of you are fast master women. So it makes sense to me that you would all end up the finish line together. So congratulations on your terrific race, particularly two weeks after Boston. And do you want to share with everyone one thing that you did different for this 10 miler that you felt yes, like? Thank you for remembering that. Yeah. So um, as, as listeners may remember uh, during Boston, I you know skipped my last gel along the course at uh, about, I forget what, you know, three hours into the race. Cause I was only about 20 minutes from the finish. And I thought, ah, I don't need another one. And I really did feel like those last couple of miles were a little bit more of a struggle. And I wondered if it was due to nutrition. So I, in the past, have never taken uh, nutrition on a 10 miler course. I typically take nutrition on, uh, anything that's going to be over 75 minutes. So fortunately for me, most of my, my 10 milers have been under, you know, typically around 110 or under. So I usually don't think I need nutrition, but I had extra Morton with me from, from Boston. And I really like Morton. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this this time and see if taking a gel at some point along, you know, even in a 10 miler, when I don't think I might need the nutrition uh, works well for me. So I took it at five miles. So that was for me about a little under, it was like 34 minutes into the race. I took a gel and I have to say, I, again, I don't, I mean, it's a 10 miler is very different than a marathon. Uh, it was a beautiful day. Weather was perfect, similar to Boston. So weather was perfect. And the course again is side of a net downhill course. So there are no big hills at the end that you have to get through similar to Boston, but I'll tell you, I had the most even split race that I think, uh, almost most even split race I've ever run every single one of my miles, other than one where I, we went through the city and I lost GPS. A signal for a little bit. So I think that one was off. Other than that, all nine other miles were all within two or three seconds of, of each other. So um, super even split and I finished feeling really strong. So I'm now a proponent of, um, of using uh, a gel in a 10 miler race. Fantastic. And we should add that the reason you weren't using a gel before isn't because you were against or that it's novel to use gels in a 10 mile race. It's because typically when you run a 10 mile race, it's just over an hour. And typically we say, you know, probably can get away with just electrolyte liquids, you know, Gatorade, whatever in the course, but you're seeing even with that, when you're running fast, having a gel halfway through, even if your race is close to an hour is, is quite beneficial. So even as absolutely. coaches, we're always learning about ourselves, right? <laughs> absolutely. So yes, like I said, I will be, um, I will be incorporating that, uh, as I move forward, even in 10 miler races. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. And thank um, you. It's a great weekend. Well, I was gone. You were actually taking over the podcast for us. So I appreciate you, um, you, you stepping in. And I really was disappointed to miss this one because this is a really uh, fascinating guest that, that we have on. So why don't you, why don't you tee it up for us? Sure. So many of us read the article in the New York times about an impressive runner at the 2022 Boston Marathon by the name of Markel Taylor, also known as Markel the Gazelle. Markel was written up in the New York Times, his incredible story. And we reached out to Markel last week and he kindly offered to come on our podcast. And we're so grateful because he has a lot to share and 
He was very transparent. I know I learned a lot while talking with him and uh, we decided we just wanted to introduce Markel and give the whole story before um, we roll into this episode. And um, we'll just, I'll just tell you a little bit about him before we roll into the episode. So Markel um, in 2001, at the age of 27, he was convicted of second degree murder for assaulting his then pregnant girlfriend, which led to the premature birth and eventual death of their child. That is not the end of his story. He was sentenced to 15 years to life and was paroled after 18 years in March, 2019. He served a lot of his time in prison at San Quentin in California, and he did the work in prison. He took advantage literally of every therapeutic and restorative program available to him, overcame his 20-year alcohol addiction, and of course, became a runner. While in San Quentin, he not only participated in multiple rehabilitation programs, but he also joined the 1,000 Mile Running Club, which he'll share how he came to joining them. It's, it's a very poignant story. The club, which is led by Coach Frank Ruona, who is a 73-year-old former Army officer who has run 78 marathons and 38 ultra marathons himself, leads this incredible program. While in the 1,000 Mile Running Club, Markel ran four marathons in the state prison, which was on a track consisting of 104, 104 and a half quarter mile loops around this track. And Markel will describe the track and what it felt like to run those loops. And he set the San Quentin Marathon record in a time of three hours and 16 minutes. Can you imagine running 104 and a half quarter mile loops? He did this four times. Julie, did he, maybe I don't want to give anything away. Do you ask him how they keep track of the laps? Oh my gosh, I didn't. I would love to. I'm I sure can't imagine. I d- there has to be some way of keeping track. <laughs> we'll have to follow up. But I'm thinking I can't keep track of like 10 laps. How, how could somebody keep track of that many laps? That's a lot of laps. That that's is a, such a great That's question. a lot of mental. Um, that That's a lot that, you know, we always talk about the, you know, the mental side of running and how you really have to um, really commit to, 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 to doing this, especially if you're training for a marathon. And, and that adds a whole other layer, I think. Oh, incredible. And he describes like the whole environment and what it was like to train and run on this track. So after setting this record in San Quentin, he was eventually paroled and he was released in March, 2019. And six weeks later, he found himself at the starting line of the 2019 Boston Marathon. He was in the charity corrals and his mentors, including Christine Yu, who is the creator of the soon to be released documentary 26.2 to life, which is about this thousand mile running club lobbied to, to the parole board for his trip to Boston. The parole board granted this trip and he went with his mentors and several others to Boston. He ran a 303 starting the back of the Boston marathon and passed all those people to do a 303, his very first race ever out of prison. And then Markel Simpson's run multiple marathons and he ran his first sub three hour marathon last fall at the age of 48. He ran a sub three marathon in California. So then he heads to Boston and most recently at the 2022 Boston Marathon, one week after being released from parole, Markel ran a new PR at age 49, 2.52. So that's his incredible running journey. But this discussion we had is it goes well beyond his running journey and 
I also want to mention he has a clothing line. It's called Markel the Gazelle Runs Free. He said he'd send us a link once he's able to get that going in terms of placing orders, but he's trying to keep up with all the orders he has locally and he's working on that. But uh, it, it was really a, a very, um, I don't even know, the, I can't even describe it. It was, it was a really intense, compelling discussion. And I, again, I greatly appreciated his transparency because he didn't have to come on and talk to us. And he had a lot of, of great things to say and um, just an incredible story. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to listening to this. And I think, you know, when we first talked about having him on, um, you know, I think we we realized through how many, you know, through the many, many people we've met through the podcast and that we've coached, uh, that people come to running from different places. Uh, and we get a very typical, you know, a lot of people come because they, they want to get healthy, they want to lose weight, they want they have some other goal in their in their mind that just, you know, that comes from a very privileged place, place too, that we all, you know, have the time and the resources to do this. And it may be part of our, you know, our friends do it and our family does it. And it's something very familiar to us that we see. Um, but I think what's really remarkable to me, not only about Markel, but we've talked to other um, runners that have come from this background, this, this a, a kind of a similar, a similar story that they um, are coming to it from a very different place. And, and for a lot of them, um, they've, face trauma when they're younger and it was really at no fault of their own, you know, they were product of foster system or they had trauma in their lives, uh, you know, that really, really, um, really horrible stories. And that, that trauma affects their development. And I think, um, you know, to come to running from that. And I think for, for many running is almost a form of healing and, and it is for a lot of us in different ways, but this is like really um, almost, you know, almost, in a way, changing brain chemistry too, and and, and changing habits, and um, and really a way to cope. And um, so that's always been fascinating to me. I had heard of Markel's story, not knowing. I, I don't even know if it was specifically him, but I heard about the Thousand Mile Club originally on the podcast Ear Hustle. And Ear Hustle to me was a, a is, and still is a podcast that I really, really like to listen to because um, I, I think it you know it tells the story of people who otherwise we may you know, pass judgment on very quickly and not quite understand, um, you know, there obviously is not, um, it's not justification, but I think understanding the background and the story of, of these individuals really helps, um, helps us understand, you know, really kind of their development as, as a person. And I think that's, um, that's what I'm looking forward to hearing about is, you know, what running has done for him and, and how he's come to running, because again, it's not, not something that, um, you know, I'm sure he's probably, he'll probably talk about this, but that's not an easy, training for a marathon is not an easy thing to do um, coming from where he he's come from. Absolutely. And to your point, um, he said this uh, a couple of times and, and such a great point is hurt people hurt. And um, he did a lot of the work internally that he had the opportunity to then do the work externally, the physical work after doing the mental work and certainly not justification, but better understanding the environment where people come from, from trauma and how that impacts their lives. Certainly the reverse can happen where if you introduce something positive like running into the prison system or any other system where hurt people are, are there and, and willing to take on the challenge, Running can certainly transform lives and it shouldn't be something that's only offered to those who are privileged enough to be able to take advantage of it. So 
um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great conversation and we appreciate Markel taking the time to talk with us. And uh, I think we should hand it over to Markel now. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. Thank you, Julie. And thanks for doing this again. No problem. Happy birthday. Thanks. Have a good week, Julie. Bye. Bye. Markel Taylor, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited to have you join us. I'm sad that my partner, Lisa, is not able to join us, but she is out of town gearing up to run the Broad Street 10-miler race on Sunday in Philly, um, but she sends her regards. And as a result, I have the opportunity to talk to you today, and we have been wowed and amazed by your journey, including your most recent Boston Marathon performance, which was nothing short of incredible. So Markel, we're going to start a little backwards and we're going to get to the end right away. We want you to share with us uh, who you are, a little bit about your background, but go right into your most recent Boston Marathon race, which we really want to hear about. Well, I'm Markel Taylor, uh, known as Markel the Gazelle. I got that nickname uh, from being formerly incarcerated resident at San Quentin, joining the Thousand Mile Running Club. And... First, I started running um, because a friend of mine in prison uh, committed suicide. But let me back up a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, in my normal uh, existence of life as a child growing up uh, in San Francisco, what was born in Chicago, Illinois, um, I had a rough childhood. Uh, not to get too much into that, um, I ended up... Uh, committing a crime that led me into prison. And I had a life sentence because of circumstances of being uh, a person of color and also uh, with not the financial uh, backing and to be able to get a good attorney. Um, and also um, just my circumstances as a whole of who I was um, and also the crime I committed led me into a, a 15 years of life um, sentence, uh, second degree murder. Um, so there I was uh, facing time for the first time in my life, a long sentence. And um, ended up through several prisons uh, throughout my uh, time of the uh, almost 18 years. So, uh, but the last place I resided was San Quentin um, State Prison. And um, I did seven years in total there. And the last four, I started running on a running club. But before that, um, I had started running right before a friend of mine decided uh, to take his own life because he had no faith in the prison system or, or ever getting out of prison. You know, the guy worked in prison industry. He was a really good guy. He wasn't getting in no trouble. But at those times uh, in prison, they weren't really letting a lot of people go. And no matter what you did and no matter how good you were, you wasn't going to get out unless they felt like letting you out. So after his, I want to say between fifth and sixth denial, he just gave up. And that hurt me because he was a close friend of mine, gave me advice. He was a little bit older gentleman that um, I really admired and appreciated and was glad to have in my life at that time because 
I was going to one day face the same thing he was facing, which is rejection from the board after doing whatever I could and being as good as I can uh, under those circumstances and conditions in prison. So he committed suicide. And then I said, you know what? I'm getting ready to go to board. I think it was maybe a year or two later, I was up due for the board and uh, I started feeling that just to clarify, when you say the board, you mean the parole board? Yes, the the board of, the board of prison hearings. Yes, uh, the board. Uh, it was I was due, and it was coming up for my turn to face the same gauntlet, as you will. So, um, yes, uh, it was my turn coming up, and I was getting that anxiety that everybody else do: nervousness, tension, anxiety. Uh, everybody handled that anxiety a different way. Some people self-sabotage by getting in trouble or fighting somebody or whatever. And I just tried to stay poised and, and it sounded mine, but really inside I was all over the place. So I started running. I started running on the track and a friend of mine said, look, why don't you join the running club here? We have a San Quentin. They give you a nice baseball cap and some brand new tennis shoes, something that you don't get in a package in prison. And me, I'm even before my incarceration, I was a man of fashion and style, and I wanted something different than what everybody else have inside the prison, which is the same old boring stuff sometimes, right? I wanted something flashy and nice. So, um, I joined the running club. And then from there, everything just catapulted into some beautiful things. And so with the running club, it's called the thousand mile club. And I assume that's because the goal is for participants to run a thousand miles while in San Quentin. Yes. Uh, yes, I guess that's the goal and the ticket. Um, to run a thousand miles, I don't think even in uh, even in a sense, unless it's a thousand miles and I just don't know it. Um, but I know is um, that's kind of interesting because I'm wondering in the four in the four years I've been there and as many races and the training and the practice that I've I've been running, I wonder if I reached a thousand. I might have. I probably went over. But it's interesting though. But that's the whole ticket. But so, okay, so let me ask you this. I'm, we'll, we'll get back to Boston in a minute because I, I do want to focus on that, but I, I think you're right. We need to lay the foundation a little bit more. So you joined this running club. Um, San Quentin obviously is unique as most prisons don't offer a running club. So can you share what this running club is and, and what the track is exactly and who led the running club and, and what the culture was like? Um, don't quote me on this about how it all started, but I got bits and pieces. First, uh, I, uh, I thought it was the head coach, Frank, and a, and a formerly incarcerated guy who was released and then passed, for so rest in peace, um, Ronnie Goodman. I thought that maybe them two together collaborated and joined the club, but that coach had to come from somewhere and how did he get in here? So later on, I found out it was a lady who was already a, 
a part of the prison somehow. Um, Laura Bowman and um, she's actually started the club somehow. I mean, I'm a bits and pieces. I'm getting it. I'm not sure exactly, but they can probably um, tell you better than I can. Um, called up Frank because I guess her and a formerly incarcerated guy um, may have talked about starting a running club or something. So I think it was between them two, her calling some people to try to make it happen. And then Frank, which is the head coach now, came in and 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 he gave himself his time and energy to come in here and start this thing because all the other people that she asked before didn't want to give nobody a chance and start this program, but he did it with her in the beginning and that's how it started. And what was it like? What's the track like? And what is the culture like in the running club? The track, um, it's like almost like cross country because it got like maybe nine turns in total, a lot of 90 degree angle turns where you got to almost go to a complete stop. And it's like, you got uphill downhill, you got dirt, you got gravel, you got pavement. So it's like, it's, I, I, the closest I can get to saying it is like a cross country course. It's on a yard that's yay big, um, but um, supposedly they measured it like one lap around this crazy yard that's shaped with different terrains and dirt pavement and all of that. It, it turns into a quarter mile track one time around. So it's a track that goes 105 laps for a marathon, one lap for a quarter, four laps for a mile. And the culture is you got all these different people from different walks of life with different kinds of crimes and case factors join this club to be create a family of runners to um, all reach the same goal of completing a marathon, but in the process, uh, building uh, new friendships and um, getting like um, uh, therapeutic healing from running and community of runners and just supporting each other and training with each other and talking and meeting and socializing with each other and breaking the barriers and the snake of people of different races and backgrounds can't be friends and can't get together as brothers in a yard of a prison. That's so beautiful. And that's like any running club, it sounds like in terms of um, the ability to bring people together with a common bond of running. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And it also is therapeutic and is healing. And um, for people who like generally don't get visits or whatever, that was a way for outside people to come and listen to our complaints, uh, you know, and our worries, our fears and our anxieties and our stresses of time and all of that. So it's like people who are like a family for us who don't have family to come in and spend time with us and listen to us without judgment. Markel, what, what was the culture? What is the culture like at the Thousand Mile Running Club within San Quentin? Well, the culture is, you know, in prison, there's like all races of people and backgrounds of all sorts you know, um, 
in a prison setting uh, of a culture that's known for being treacherous and violent and a lot of segregation. With that being said, with the Thousand Mile Run Club community inside of San Quentin State Prison, these are a group of guys who may have started out in a sense with the prison politics and the culture of the violence and all of that and became decent civilized human beings and have the love of one another and the friendships and the bonds that was being created and blended and made and we became a loving family of runners that are brothers that connects way beyond the prison setting. How did that how did that work for you personally? Because I would imagine that initially when you went into the club, it wasn't automatic because living in the conditions of San Quentin where there's so much div divisiveness, it, it probably didn't come naturally first. So how did that work for you? Well, I don't, I'm not gonna say it didn't come naturally because a lot of times some people need more work at it than other people. I've always been a person that I've never been a racist. So, and I never had a lot of hate for people. It's just that, you know, the wounded dog syndrome, hurt people, hurt people, healing people, heals people. So with that being said, um, because of the masking, the internal pain and the suffering and the things that I was, uh, that uh, accumulated and was built up um, like the boiling pot that committed me, uh, that caused me to commit my crime, happened for me to be a, into that predicament. Um, that's how it is for a lot of people going into prison. You know that, you know those different reasons for these different things, but whatever it is, just uh, the ability to get out of their comfort zone or do things that they don't normally do. They um, get together or we got together as a, as with one common goal or two common goals, which is to start running and whether it's to get in shape or for whatever personal reasons of, uh, it's all therapeutic, it's all getting out of a prison cell, it's all being able to try to, uh, reached the ultimate goal of running a marathon. And what was the role of the mentors and coaches in the group to create the environment where there were those unified goals? Well, you know, just like cake mix, you need certain ingredients to make it rise. The coaches were that secret ingredients to help us rise above our different adversities and to reach a common goal of completing a marathon. And how did they do that? Um, by coaching us. And what I mean by coaching us is being consistent at coming in and speaking with us, telling us how to train and eat and get rest, give us a, a, a plan, which is calendars, 
with different race days, different practices, um, um, you know, just giving us these plans for a short term to eventually a long-term goal of completing the marathon. So I would imagine the coaches didn't come in every day. So how frequently were the coaches there and how did you and others stay motivated in between their visits to make sure you stuck with the calendar you were given? Well, like I said, a lot of us didn't get visits. And just to be able to get out of a prison cell, to be able to get visits, and then once you get out and start doing these practices, you develop these bonds and these friendships with not only with each other on the running club, but we connect um, as human beings, even with the coaches that come in. You know, so it was like we became this family. So you look forward to seeing like when you have a visitor that you ain't seen in years or a visitor that you like seeing, but you don't see them too often. So when they come, you have this really good, you have this really good time with them. So it's kind of like, that's what we be waiting for and be looking for when we see these coaches coming in and they, they stay consistent on a day-to-day basis. And we have these conversations that are very intimate and peaceful and loving. You know what I'm saying? Um, they hear us, they hear our complaints, they hear our struggles, they hear everything, you know, and we hear stuff from them. So it's just building this connection and this, this, this family of brotherhood um, and sisters, because also there are women volunteer coaches that also come in and they give us that sisterly, motherly love and approach to it as well. So it sounds very similar to a running club outside of a San Quentin situation where what is said on the run stays on the run. You get intimate with your running partners. You share personal things. Were there any sort of rules with respect to conversation? Um, Were there any guidelines with what you were able to talk about or was it just a free for all? Well, I'm going to say this. That's a good point. And that's a good question to ask. There were a certain level of respect and there are rules because you don't want to cross the line. And cause if you cross the line and you, and you do things that are uh, against the rules of the prison structure um, with, with regards to outside sponsors or supporters or coaches or what have you or whatnot. Um, when you do that, it destroys the program. So we didn't want to take what we had and lose that. Like you didn't want to, um, if you love your partner, you don't want to cheat on them and lose that person that you're really close to. So it's kind of like that relationship, that intimacy and that friendship that you didn't want to lose and destroy just based on some stupid negative behavior that would ruin it for everybody else. That makes perfect sense. And, and same rules apply, should apply to any running club, regardless of the environment. So exactly. very yeah. solid rules. Yeah. Right. So do you feel like, I know that you did some programs within San Quentin before joining the running club. Do you feel that the running club changed you or did you change before you started the running club? Well, um, that's a good question. I think it was that perfect balance, but I think it was just something with my spirituality and the groups 
you know, it's like you have the head, you have the hands, you have the arms, but you still need to feed the walk, right? So yeah. the running was my feet to hold everything together. That makes sense. You have the structure, you worked on what was inside the structure. And then when it came time to use the structure, you were able to, because you had worked on what was inside. Exactly. And the running was that other extra added element that brings everything to its proper perspective. So you ran um, well before you ended up serving a prison sentence. You were a, a track star, right? Uh, well, if you consider two years of high school track and one light season of uh, junior college track and field, uh, which really only expands to maybe like a year and a half total. Because what it was is I ran track my junior year. Then when I went my senior year, I did cross country before track. And then I liked it. And then I had a small scholarship and I did track in junior college and that was it. I did one, one season of track. So I kind of, that was like my, and I, and I look at that as the first year, I didn't take it too serious. The second year I was a little bit more serious and a little bit more disciplined, but not much. And then I did it in junior college, but at that time, alcohol kind of like took over and I got a little bit lazy, didn't take it as serious. And then I ended up dropping out of school, so. So really the first time you realized that you had this very unique endurance talent was within San Quentin. Exactly. So tell me about the moment that you realized Oh my gosh, I'm really good at this. Hmm, man, that's another good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I think the coaches, the runners themselves, and the people who watch day in and day out helped me to understand the type of runner that I was because I still really wasn't truly convinced. But they helped me to see that I was that person who had those talents. So I you didn't I, even realize it yourself initially. It was the coaches that made you realize that you had this talent. Exactly. Wow. So did the coaches have to bring in other people to run with you because you're so fast? The coach did. He brought in a guy who was, uh, I consider a world-class runner and was like ranked pretty high in ultra running in Northern California. Dylan Bowman is his name. Uh, oh, Dylan Bowman. Yeah, yeah. So he was your running partner. He would come in uh, as a volunteer coach to help push me to my full potential. Love it. And you probably pushed him too. Yeah, we pushed each other. I didn't believe him at first, but then he really said sincerely, I really pushed him to run faster. And so we kind of like battle each other. That's, that's wonderful. So tell me about your first marathon in San Quentin, what that felt like and how you did. 
that was my first experience. Um, and I ran that. Uh, wow, that's that's another tough question. Um, I was still inexperienced then, and I was still running like a fool. I say, because I was running like without really having a true sense of pacing uh, and not really listening to just going off a of natural raw talent and pride and representing me who I am and running for a purpose. I just kind of threw all that into the excitement of just going for it all. And so that would burn me out. So when it was towards the end, I was ready to fade because I was running sixes <laughs> instead of just running smarter and just running smoother and pacing better. I, it took me actually, to be honest with you, it took me the last few marathons to actually get it. And that- You're not alone. <laughs> It took me, yeah, it took me the last few marathons to actually get it. And now I think I got it enough to where I know what it takes now to break three hours in a marathon. And so let's go there for a minute. You did it. You broke three hours in marathon the first time in the fall of 2021. What race was that? Avenue of the Giants. And that's in San Francisco. No, that was in uh, Humboldt County. Okay. So. When you went to Boston for this Boston, this would be your second Boston. We'll get to your first in a moment. How confident were you that you were going to break three when you uh, got to the start line last week? Well, you know, as well as I know, that running to me and probably to you too, if I'm stand to be corrected, is 90% mental and 10%. Absolutely. So... As long as I know I've done it twice before going into Boston, smarter runner now, a better pacer now, I got it. So that part there gave me the confidence to go in there and break three. So talk to me and tell me, take me through starting in Hopkinton, first Boston since 2019 in April. First, your second Boston, but your first spring Boston. How'd you feel on the start line? And tell me about some of the highlights in the race and uh, any tips you have for those who are running Boston in the future. Um, it was very emotional for me because what I had to go through to get there this time, I had more anxiety than I did the first time. Why is that? Because when I first got out of prison, I already had media attention because they was filming us two years with Christine Yu doing a documentary. So I kind of felt like I had support in that. And moving forward by qualifying for Boston, being in San Francisco on parole and having a movie producer to back me and this whole documentary thing and the the whole thrill and excitement about being in Boston and running. And because I ran for a charity and they raised this money of $8,500 to run for this Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. So all of this was something that was like 
how can the city of San Francisco refuse allowing me to go? This is kind of how I was looking at it now. And I had that support where they had a little bit of a, um, because they were just going through the motions and they just wanted to see how it would go and how things would transpire. But they eventually allowed me to go with not too much resistance. You were talking about Boston in the fall of 2021. No, I'm talking about Boston when I first got out of prison in 2019. That's right. I'm sorry, in 2019. So that was different because you were a charity runner. You had there was a lot of hoopla around it in a different way. And, and I'm on parole and right. I'm in San Francisco. Right. Okay. Which to me is whether you're on parole or not, they are the best for formerly incarcerated people, whether you're running or not, they support their people no matter what or what your situation is. They want to help you the best way they can as long as you're trying to do what's right. So tell me what caused you to feel more anxiety than running it this year when you're done with parole and you're there because you qualified. What made you feel more anxious this year? Because I wasn't on, I was, I was still on parole. I was still on parole and I kept being ignored when I kept asking for this traveling pass to go to Boston. San Francisco didn't take that long and didn't have me feeling like they possibly might not let me go. Got it. When I moved to Marin, they made me feel like they wasn't gonna let me go or they was gonna do whatever they can to have that control, that noose around my neck, so to speak. We're gonna do it when we wanna do it. We're gonna let you go when we decide to let you go. And if it means the last minute, then we'll say so. So that's where the anxiety came in at because they are very aggressive and conservative and I still feel like it needs work because the balance of how different counties treat you when you're on parole, there's a problem with Santa Rosa and Marin County. Got but it. Another story. But, but you, you actually were released from parole though just right before the marathon. That's the thing. They did it right before. Got it. I was getting ready to go. Okay. But so, I would rather them say you're off parole than okay, we're giving you permission. So I guess it was worth the wait, right? Right. But it sounds like what you're saying is that anxiety of not knowing definitely did not allow you to get to the race feeling relaxed because you were focused so much on your status and whether you would get there at all. Exactly. So once you got there, and now all of a sudden within a week, you not only learn that you're no longer on parole, but also that you are running the Boston Marathon. And it's, of course, another element is the weather is going to be fantastic. Then how did you feel when you got to the start line? I felt liberated. I felt like my business, Marquetta Gazelle runs free. I really, literally, physically, no parole, no shackles i am literally running free so when i got that information when i was at work at my job i broke down and i cried 
and I prayed to God. I was on my knees and I was crying and I started telling people, I was afraid to tell people sometimes, sometimes that I was on parole because of the stigma and the, and the um, lash back at the fact that I mean, I was incarcerated or I'm on parole. So it's like people fear you or they wanna act you know, different towards you. So, but I was so excited and so happy for not being on parole I was telling people I'm on parole that didn't even know I was even on it. <laughs> but I'm sure they were also happy for you because you yeah, they really were, were yeah. They were also happy for me. I didn't tell every every everybody what they know now, but I told my supervisor and a guy that I was talking to at my new job and that I was going to Boston and just like my clothing line I started I'm going to be literally running free. So I guess that burden um, had kind of had me still a little nervous because now that was lifted, but now I'm in Boston by myself. I'm not sure if I undertrained or overtrained. I was listening to some coaches and I tried a, a different method than I normally would try to get to that point, but yet everything worked out. So take us through the race. Um, how did you find the race compared to your first Boston? And what did you do differently for this race that allowed you to achieve a new PR? Well, the other Boston, it was a lot of stuff and frustration going on with that. And also, I had cameras. I had a camera crew that was following me and taking it because you know it was a part of the documentary. Right, which hasn't been released yet, right? No, that hasn't been released yet. Okay. And then at this nice fancy hotel I was living at, there was a scare of a bomb the morning of the race. Oh my gosh. So at like 10 to five in the morning, we had to evacuate the hotel and I That's couldn't crazy. go back in there. So it was a lot of these things that were like, just very frustrating, right? And then um, it was cold, it was muddy, it was wet. It was all of these things, right? It was even raining that morning. Um, and then it finally got hot. So it was funny weather and all that. This time it got hot and I was scared about, that was the other anxiety. I was scared about it getting too hot because I run better in the cool. But I said, you know what? I'm seasoned, I'm experienced. I know how to pace. And then those beautiful coaches that I have said, you know what? You're well rested this time. You experience, you're smart. Cause I got some coaches that are like my mamas and big sisters that motivated me and gave me these prep talks that helped me reinforce my confidence. Who are your coaches? Give them a shout out. Uh, Frank Rona, head coach. I give him the biggest shout out because he's an amazing man and he helped get this thing started and he, um, got these other team of coaches that I've met and became good friends with um, to uh, get this whole thing rolling and successful the way it is. Uh, so first and foremost, Frank Rona. Then you got Diana Fitzpatrick and Tim Fitzpatrick, which is husband and wife team coaches that come in and they're very inspirational and inspiring. And all these coaches that I'm naming are also ultra runners or had really good fast marathon times in their prime. 
Yeah. Have, yeah, Diana, Diana's the president of Western States, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's one of the, she's one of the ones that called me and was giving me prep talks and stuff like that. And then you have Kevin Roman, uh, who who's a accomplished uh, ultra runner who uh, is faithful with the club and coming in as a volunteer coach with Frank Rona. And then you have uh, Mark Stevens, who's another great guy, who's a runner and also a track coach at the uh, Sarantville High School track. And then you have Dylan Bowman, who comes uh, every now and then, you know, um, because he's a young, youthful, fast guy who is very most motivational and inspirational. All of them. Um, and then you have um, uh, Jim Maloney. And the other is two Jims. The older one who was in his in his 80s or 70s, late 70s or early 80s, who was running. That's very inspiring and inspirational. And as fast as he can run it, you know what I'm saying? And he's, see, all of these guys, and Jim Maloney, who comes in, and all of these coaches are like our big brothers. And Frank is like our father coach. And Tim, uh, I mean, and Diane Fitzpatrick is like our mother, mothering love and nurturing spirit, you know, and, um, and then you have some that come um, for like that big moment or those main closer to the marathon, like, uh, uh, excuse me if I get her name wrong, but uh, Melanie, Melanie uh, Schultz or something like that. Um, she was a three-time uh, Dipsy champion, as well as Diane being a two-time Dipsy champion. Um, she comes in during the marathon day um, with that beautiful accent, and she's an older woman that's still an accomplished runner, you know. And uh, um, it's just so the all these all these coaches come together, and they are giving you pep talks so that you get to the start line this year mentally prepared for this challenge. Yeah, yeah. But and I'm so the coaches that comes in to the club too on right. Monday to do lap counting and talk to us and and everything like that, right? You know? So, so they must have been so encouraging once you're out and getting you to this ultimate goal of achieving a sub three at Boston. Oh yeah, that was, first my dream came true for me to actually get out and to get out and run Boston and then to come back to get out and break three. So all of these things happen. It's incredible. You, you did the work, but they certainly provided you with the platform and the courage to try. So you, so take us through the race and sort of what are some of the highlights that you remember and what, what are some of the moments that you sit, said to yourself, I don't know if I can do this. So just take us through some of the highs and lows of, of your Boston Marathon this year. Well, I'm going to say this to you. Even in the first Boston, I know in my heart of hearts that I broke three in the beginning because I was running with a Timex watch, something that I was more familiar with when I was in the prison. And I clicked it when I started and I clicked it when I crossed the finish line. And I had 257.12 on my watch. But because I was running in the back of a pack of 8,000 people in a charity, which was the fourth wave and the very last corral, it was almost, it took that much time just trying to get to that starting line 
and crossing that starting line with everybody else. Cause I wasn't in the very front because I had to kind of blend out into the back where the mm-hmm. camera see me when the, when Christine Yu, the movie producer was filming. Yeah, that makes sense. So you got your second chance this year with uh, you know, the first wave and you were able to really get into your gear. Exactly. And I'm a more distinguished runner, a better pacer, and with the confidence of already doing it twice. So tell me a little bit about the highs and lows of the race and any um, advice you have for people running Boston, what you've learned from running the race twice and, and what advice you have. The highs and the lows. It was something I was already prepared for because of being in prison where you have all of these obstacles when you're trying to practice or when you're actually running a race. You have people that are walking in front of you knowing that they're supposed to clear the track for you when you're running. But because the yard is shared by people of all walks of life, people that are still in the gangbang, people that are still jealous and hateful and spiteful, and then you just got people that just clueless about what's going on and they just out there spaced out on drugs or whatever, whatever's going on, you're going to have somebody that's going to walk in front of you and cut you off. But then it's so narrow and small also in the yard compared to, well, except for if you're running something like Boston, where it's so crowded and no matter how wide it is, it's just so many people, you're going to still have these uh, obstacles. So just like people cutting you off there and something that I was used to in prison that was still frustrating and you ask people to move or you have to might kind of nudge a person or whatever, you can't do that kind of stuff in, on the streets because it's, it's, it's illegal, but um, at least you can just try to hopefully say excuse me or try to move or move around these people in a way that you don't exert yourself too much because you have to reserve your energy and pace well. So absolutely, that was some of the downs. Another down is if you have to use the bathroom. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's another one. But um, the highs are the excitement and the motivation from the music and the crowds of people that are cheering you on to help move you. Um, people that you can catch up to and kind of pace with. Um, just the excitement of being off parole and really being liberated in the in in that moment in time where I'm just running more freely, and I ran more freely to where I really enjoyed it. And then a lot of the pep talks with like smiling helps you to stay relaxed. So I did a lot of smiling and participating with the crowd, slapping their hands, giving kids high five, giving adults high five, and just really hearing and using the energy of the crowd. It's almost like having home feel advantage when you're not at home because of the people are so in tune with you and you are in tune with them. And even though I didn't even know my own number, just those people who are saying, keep it up, 4310. You can just hear those things resonate in your ears from a distance as you run it. So when you came down Boylston Street and you knew that you had it in the bag, what were your feelings as you um, approached the finish line during that long stretch? I didn't have the sprint, I didn't have the sprint speed I did the very first Boston Marathon, but what I did have a consistent pace that I knew I can hold. 
And, and instead of fading um, like I did in my previous marathon at Cal International and with my half marathon at the Oakland half, I was able to stay consistent like I did at Avenue of the Giants, which was by the way, my by far perfect race. This one, I was able to maintain a, a stride without fading too much. And so when I did that, I said, you know what? I feel like, and by looking at my watch periodically, that I was able to try to maintain at least a 6.30 pace. And so I was able to hold it. And I figured, I know that a 6.51 would get me just at or around or a little bit under three. So if I did a 6.43, I know that would be close to a 2.56 or 2.55 or whatever. And if I was able to maintain a 6.30, I'll fall in between. So, I always say, if I do and I stick to the plan, I don't care what the time is, maybe I may surprise myself. And actually, I thought I ran a 2.54. And I was happy with that, because I said at least a 2.54 would be better than a 2.56, but not as great as my cow, which I was hurting afterwards. Because I felt good where I could probably run another 5K um, at a 7 minute pace flat that's how much energy i felt i still had at the end of that wow that was the best i felt but i know the giants was the most consistent by pace and time but you beat that time at boston beat that time at boston and i felt a lot better afterwards and what was your exact time 252 flat Amazing. So you had about a four minute PR from your best marathon Avenue of the Giants. Yes. Incredible. At a harder race that was way more crowded and a little bit, a lot more hillier. Oh yeah. Boston is a hard race. And, and I did take the liberty of looking at your, your splits when I looked at your results and you had a really consistent race at Boston. I know you mentioned that Avenue of the Giants was quote unquote, more perfect. But for Boston, you ran a stellar race. So you clearly had great coaches and you are a terrific runner in that you were able to implement their advice and actually execute, which is really hard. I was way more rested too for Boston. I had a two week taper instead of doing a lot of pacing runs and having less rest. That makes a difference. That's why I said I was a little bit afraid when I was telling you that I felt like I wasn't sure if I was um under trained or or did I have too much rest but it actually turned out to be how my body felt afterwards the best race ever so that's good information for you to know for your next race that a longer taper works for you more rest yeah yeah so what is your next goal well if I can somehow get permission to run Chicago this year I would turn 50. It would be a flat, fast course. It would be in my hometown that I haven't been in other than leaving my dad and seeing him for the first time since I was five and coming back to Chicago since I was seven. It would be the same year coming back a second time 
from being gone for so long, going to my hometown, running a Chicago marathon as a well-distinguished uh, runner. And this is supposed to be a fast course like Cal International. So I want to see if I can break three again in my hometown and represent my dad who is struggling to survive with um, liver cancer. It's a beautiful goal. So what is the obstacle? You don't have an entry right now and you're seeking to be able to get an entry. Well, if, if the people that said they would help support me in trying to write the race director there, and if the race director would give me the opportunity to go back to my hometown and do this, that's what would be the only thing that would be holding me back for going and running this year in October. Well, hopefully with the publication of this podcast, somebody will hear it and help you achieve that goal. It's, it would be incredible for you to be able to run in your hometown, coming back in a very different way than when you left your hometown and creating new memories um, that will help to um, not replace the trauma that you endured in Chicago, but at least provide happy memories to counter the trauma that you endured while living there. And representing my father and people who struggle and suffer or die from, from any kind of forms of cancer, this would be for my dad and my mom who died seven months before he may pass. But I'm hoping that he can at least hang on for October to be wheelchaired out there to see me do this. But if he don't and he don't make it to that point, which he probably won't, um, this would be in memory of him and as well as for my mom. That's beautiful. So you've achieved so much. You've, in addition to running so well and, and very quickly becoming a top master's runner, you also have managed to stay, stay sober for over 20 years. Yeah. You've overcome tremendous obstacles. You've served a tremendous amount of time in prison. What do you tell people what is your advice for those who are in situations that may feel helpless and they feel hopeless? What advice do you have? Because certainly you've endured a lot of moments of hopelessness in your trajectory, and I'm sure you have some great advice. First of all, I would like to say, um, I am a man of faith and I do believe in God. But whatever your higher power is, whether it's yourself, whether it's a friend, whether it's the true God, whatever it is to you, life is like a marathon. It's gonna have its ups and downs. It's gonna be difficult at times. It's gonna feel good, but never give up. Never give up on your dreams, never give up on your hopes. And when things seem really tough, just remember, there's always somebody else who is in that same predicament or worse. And as long as you don't give up, it shouldn't last. It's just another obstacle that will soon pass. So just never give up on your dreams and your short and long-term goals. And don't be hard on yourself and just continue to you know, take one step, one day, one moment. That's beautiful. 
I think this is a right note to end on. And Markel, uh, we can't thank you enough for sharing your story, your very personal story and your journey, which we know undoubtedly will help others. And uh, like I said earlier, you should write a book. I think you got a lot of good things to say. And certainly your story is, is one that people are interested in and intrigued by. And so many folks are rooting for you and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great. And congratulations on all you've done to overcome what happened in your past and to, to create a new life for yourself. It's, it's really remarkable and just keep on going one foot in front of the other. So thank you so much for joining us today. So appreciate you taking the time to do this and continue to run well and wishing you health and continued strong running. And we can't wait to see what you do in Chicago because we know you'll get there. Uh, yeah, it's like a marathon. I really believe that I will be there this year in October. That's why I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that in my vision. Chicago under three. There we go. October. And I thank you. And I, I'm extremely appreciative. Um, and I am very grateful to have this opportunity to be able to speak whatever I can speak in my heart from my heart um, to be able to um, motivate and inspire other people. And I'm here to help heal hearts because by me helping heal hearts, I'm healing my own. And I thank you for the opportunity and I am extremely grateful and I thank you. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks again, Markel, and we'll chat soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.